If you will, turn back in your Bibles to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. We're in Romans chapter 2, and I have a few things I want us to capture. So I need you thinking today, need you thinking. We might be able to get into worship, but I need you thinking. Romans chapter 2 is a continuation of an argument by the Apostle Paul, and I want you to understand what arguments are. When a person is in argument mode, he's not really engaging in dialogue. He is really monologically setting forth his premise, his position, his perspective, his argument. And that's what the book of Romans is from chapter one to chapter six. Chapter one, verse one to chapter six, verse 10 is an ongoing, relentless, nonstop argument by the apostle Paul. And his argument is that God is righteous in everything that he does. That's his argument. God is righteous in everything that he does. And then he supplements that major proposition with arguments about the unrighteousness of human beings over against God's righteousness. That men and women are unrighteous in their assaying to judge God for being righteous. And what Paul does for six chapters is lays out an argument for God's right to judge humanity. God's right to judge humanity. Check me out from Romans 1 through Romans 6. The concept of dikios, it's the term righteous. Righteous runs all the way through chapter 5. Righteous, righteous, righteous. And the argument that Paul lays out is that God is righteous and the rest of us are unrighteous. That's his argument, okay? And his argument is to lead us somewhere. Now, the man or the woman that does not believe that they are unrighteous, when God says they're unrighteous, can only have a righteousness that can be said to be self-righteous, The only kind of righteousness you can have when God says to you that you are unrighteous is your own righteousness, which is self-righteousness. And what Paul will do today is bridge the gap between Jew and Gentile and prove, as he already has, that the Gentiles have suppressed the truth, as we saw in Romans 1.18, by a pagan expression of obtuse perversion as a culture, Right? But the Jews are no different, and this is what Paul is about to argue now. The Jews are just like the Gentiles, only worse. Because whereas the Gentiles do it without the coded law, the Jews do it with the coded law. And what Paul is going to argue is that there is no other true righteousness but the righteousness that comes from God through Christ alone. Every other righteousness is self-righteous, including the self-righteous Jew. Now, it's important for you to capture what we're about to do because it's going to take several weeks to get to the imperative in the uh, epistle to the Romans. The first time Paul tells you and me to do something is Romans six eleven. That's a long argument, isn't it? That's a long time for a brother to say, let me make my case before I give you the conclusion as to what you should do if you happen to believe my argument. 
That is to reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God only through Christ Jesus. That's a commandment. Did y'all get that? And Paul's under the assumption that he has thoroughly persuaded all of his Roman auditors, auditors, all of his Jewish auditors, that the danger of rejecting the righteousness that comes from God leaves you stuck with nothing but self-righteousness. Now his goal is to make all believers Christ-righteous Jews. You can write that down and keep that and run with that, put it on a T-shirt. That's going to be the battle until Jesus comes. The goal of the apostle is to make every one of us as himself Christ-righteous Jews. Christ-righteous Jews. You see, if you look very carefully at what Paul is doing, Paul is laying out an argument that has as his spotlight an argument with his Jewish brethren. Look over at verse 17. We'll pick it up next week there for sure, Lord willing. But look at verse 17. Behold, you call yourself a what? See it? And you rest in the law and you make your boast of God. Now look down at what he says over in verse 22, uh, verse 21 rather. Thou therefore which teachest another, do you not teach yourself? You that preach to a man that he shouldn't steal, do you steal? You that say you should not commit adultery, are you committing adultery? Now we know the answer, right? Because Jesus showed up and exposed all that, didn't he? The objective of the Apostle Paul is to conclude that Jew and Gentile are both under sin and they need to be made Christ-righteous Jews. Did y'all get that? Christ righteous Jews. Now, if you have a moral compass that's healthy, you need to cherish that. If you have within you that mechanism by which you can discern right and wrong and you really can, you need to thank God for it. And then you need to cultivate it because we live in an era and the era in which we live is filled with temptations. And the temptations are to drive you and, away, you and I away from a healthy moral compass. If God has granted you the ability to see evil for what it is, to see goodness for what it is, to see darkness for what it is and light for what it is, then God has granted you a healthy moral compass. Did y'all catch what I just stated? And what you want to do is protect that moral compass. You want to preserve that moral compass and you want to cultivate that moral compass because the world is filled with temptations. In fact, The devil lives on temptation lane and his job is to knock you off of your moral compass and turn you into the perversion that this culture daily is replicating. Am I making some sense? Psalm 1 verse 1 says, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorner. That individual has a healthy moral compass. It's healthy enough for them to say no when it's time to say no. I live in a culture where people don't even know why to say no. I'm simply saying to you, child of God, if God has given you the grace to comprehend what sin is, call it what it is and agree with God. Because otherwise you and I will be set up for the tragic closing of Romans chapter one, where reprobation sets into the mind. 
because the mind is not given over to God. And then every way is right in a man's own eyes. And that you would dare tell him that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. Then they're going to jump on you like you're some kind of bigot when all you're doing is operating out of a healthy moral and ethical compass. Am I making some sense? And I'm here to tell you, as Paul is going to lay out, he's going to lay out within a genre of language for you and me, the whole idea of good and evil, the whole idea of right and wrong. This is what you're getting ready to have an exercise on. Okay, the whole idea of good and evil. I know where he's going. You should as well. But this here is going to be one of the things that will lay down our discourse in our Pilgrim's Progress around the dusty parlor. Some of you guys are with me on the dusty parlor, and I'm telling you that that's an exercise in the proper application of the gospel on the heart of mankind. The dusty parlor explains how that God's law is designed to drive you to Christ that cleansing might come through him and him alone. Did that make some sense, child of God? And so what you're getting ready to see is what I consider one of the grandest Christ-righteous Jews I have ever met. His name is the Apostle Paul. He's one of the grandest Christ-righteous Jews I have ever met. How about you? Besides Jesus being the best Christ-righteous Jew, for me, the Apostle Paul is a supreme servant in that way. Wouldn't you agree? Because there was a day when this apostle operated at the highest echelons of self-righteousness. He worked for the wrong high priest. He had the wrong covenant and he was given to the wrong identity. But God in his mercy got a hold of Paul and changed the contract and hired him to be a mercenary of the gospel. And I can tell you something right now. Paul lived in this day. Are you listening to me? He would be called a Jew hating Jew. How many of you guys keeping up with me right now? I know you're scared. <laughs> chapter one gives us the bent and behavior of a society when it rejects God as its light. That's what chapter one is. It's the bent and behavior of a society when it re- rejects God as its light. And I, I promise you, you and I live in chapter one today. Do we not? Chapter two shows us how men will think that they can escape the judgment of God by occupying the seat of judgment. Chapter two will teach us how men will think they can escape the judgment of God by occupying the seat of judgment, controlling the law, assessing judgments on others while in perverse violation of the same law. Paul is bridging the gap more explicitly, as I stated, between Jew and Gentile, Gentiles without law, Jews with law, Gentiles doing bad Jews doing worse because he that knows to do good and doeth it not, it is a more gross evil. I love me some Paul. Point number one in our outline under the title, The Pilgrim's Progress Through Romans, the self-righteous what? Yeah, I know in a minute you're going to jail for that. But this is what the text will teach you under our first point. The issue here is the righteousness and judgment of God being argued by Paul over against the self-righteousness and judgments of men. Look at point number one in your outline. The unrighteous what? The unrighteous what? The unrighteous judge is the topic of the first five verses. The uh, first five verses in your outline. Unrighteous judge. We got a few in our day, don't we? 
Do we have a few unrighteous judges in our day? All right, we, I'm going to pull up one or two in a minute. Can I do that to show you how contemporary your Bible is? But would you look at point number, verse number one in chapter two? Therefore, you are inexcusable. That is our word again, unapologetic. You have no apologetic for your position. Apologetics is the idea of being able to defend your position theologically, philosophically, or argue on grounds of logic and reason. Did y'all get that? Apologetics. We have that in theology. We defend the gospel, the claims of God, his nature, his work, his redemptive call, his claim on sinners. We defend that as the reality in which we all live. It's called apologetics. Here Paul says, you have no apologetic. Now watch who he's describing. Old man, whosoever you are, that judgest. And here's the reason you don't have an excuse. For wherein you judge others, you condemn yourself. For you that judges others do exactly the same thing. Boom! That's a mic drop right there. See what he's doing? Now, I know you're scattering in your soul because you think he's talking about you. Now, he might be, but he's talking about other people uh, in much more prestigious positions. He would be talking about me. I've told you this. Hell is a reserve for two people for the most part, the hottest parts of hell. Hell has degrees. The hottest parts of hell is for lawyers. (laughs) And worse than them are preachers for misrepresenting the law that represents the character and nature of God. And preachers whitewash it in order to make people think they're all right with God when they're not. See, the Apostle Paul sees what's going on in our judicial system right now, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He recognized the uncouth judges that are rising up right now in judgment against people because they want to make a name for themselves. He recognizes the judges right now that are getting paid off by big tech, big business, big pharma right now to destroy the souls of men and women. Paul recognizes what's going on right now in this presidential election with all the wicked judges thinking that they can rise up to become historically famous for being the first person to put the president under the jailhouse. But God is in the business, as we've learned by that neo-prophet Cat Williams, of exposing things this year, has he not? Yeah, God is exposing things. And this is where you, child of God, need to be very careful. Watch it. The proverb says, the wise righteously considers the house of the wicked as God destroys it for its wickedness. We don't, we don't put our hands on destroying people when you know the truth, but we watch it. We certainly watch. We watch to see when God covers up and when God uncovers. When God uncovers, it's for all of us to know that God is sovereign and you can't get away with evil. That's what Paul is meaning by our last verse. In the day when Jesus Christ will judge the secrets of men by our gospel. Point number one says the unrighteous judge. What does he do? Listen to what the apostle argues in verses one through four. And then five is his conclusio. He says, 
wherein you judge others, you are condemning yourself because you are doing the same thing. Now, I feel a need to justify the concept of analysis, criticism, discernment, and assessment. That is to say, there is a right way to judge. I feel a need to do that because ignorant people will tell you don't judge them when in fact they're judging you for judging them. I just want y'all to catch that, okay? See, see, we're logical people at Grace. Right. You're going to judge me for judging you and you're going to tell me not to judge you. But you got to first tell yourself not to judge me so that in you're not judging me, you can have a right to assess what I'm doing. But you don't get to tell me don't judge you if you judge me. See what I'm getting at? Now, that kind of uh, bifurcation will have you in one spot for a long time. Don't ever stay there. Don't spend a whole lot of time recognizing when people are ignorant of the principles of logic. Solomon said, when you see that kind of food, just walk away because they don't understand that they're condemning themselves. Y'all got what I just stated? All right, let me go to work a little bit. Listen to what he says. But we are sure that the what? This is what I meant, the judgment of God. See, the whole subject is God's righteous judgment. We are sure that the judgments of God are according to what? Against them that commit such things. Do you believe that child of God? All right, see, so here we go. Do you really believe that God's judgment, his assessment, his law, his word is right about all of the stuff we're doing? I'm talking about all of the stuff we're doing. I'm talking about all of it now, not just some of it, because you know what people will do, even Christians, they will block off certain things and say, that's not that bad. This is not wrong. In my eyes, it's not wrong. You know what you're doing right there? Exercising self-righteousness. See, now when God lays down the rule, when he puts the plumb line down and says right or wrong and you agree with God, which is called confession, then you are exercising righteous judgment. Am I making some sense? And God is calling all Christians to do it. Most Christians are not. But that's what Paul is saying. See, and if you are sure that God's judgments are right, then you'll agree with God. But if you're not sure, you won't. And the devil loves to keep you in temptation lane where he destroys your capacity to be confident in God's judgment. Some of y'all keeping up with me, right? So when you meet people who are not confident in God's judgment, it's because they have not really resolved that God is all wise, all knowing, impeccable, doesn't change. His qualities are designed to lead us in the right direction. So even if you and I don't like God's judgments, what's the point of that? as long as God's judgment is right. See what I'm getting at? I may not like it, but that does not matter. God's been here long, a lot longer than you and me. God's not asking now, do you like what I just said right there? He's never asked you that. He's never, you know, would you, can, can I get your feeling on that? You know, I'm trying to do a poll across the nation to see whether or not my judgment is valid or not. But you see how politics takes you away from the word of God? Gets you wrapped up in your own self-righteousness? That's what's going on in our text and in our world as well. Look at verse three. Look at verse three. I need to get through this. Romans two, verse three. And do you think this, O man, that judges them which do such things? What is he talking about? Romans chapter one. This is an ongoing narrative. Okay, do I have to do some theology and bore y'all right now? Look, your Bible is not chapter and verse. Your Bible is an ongoing commentary from Genesis to Revelation. We put the chapters and the verses in there. These are letters. 
with a series of ideas and notions that only advance after the initial series of ideas are developed. Chapter two is just what we say. Paul is still speaking from chapter one. Somebody say amen. Right. And if you don't read your Bible right, you're going to get caught up in the fictitious categories. If you think chapter two is a whole new subject, you're wrong. When he gets to chapter two, he's assuming you got the premise. And the premise is this, that God has given them up to vile affections, to do things among themselves that are not right and convenient because they did not want to retain a knowledge of God in their mind. So he gave them up. And then the last verse in Romans chapter one makes our premise clear. Listen to it. This is not the last verse, but this is the verse that precedes his argument. Who knowing the judgment of God, who knowing the judgment of God. Didn't Paul say we all know? Didn't he tell us in Romans chapter one, verse 18, that we are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And in verse 19, because God has made it known to us. Didn't I tell you that every human being has a fundamental knowledge of the moral law of God so that we are without excuse? Didn't I tell you that? Didn't the text tell you that? So follow this. When Paul says here, who knowing the uh, law of God, who knowing the judgment of God, he's referring to people who know inherently and also know according to the added uh, code called Torah, what's right and wrong. Paul is already addressing Jew and Gentile. Raise your hand if you got that. He hasn't literally said it, but he's addressing all mankind. He's about to now emerge and put his hand on those people who think they're better than other people because they have the law, they know the law, and they use the law, but they don't do the law. You see where we are now? We're among people who like to carry their Bible and use it as an argument, but don't obey it themselves. These are called self-righteous Jews. See, now this is why you got to put your seatbelt on. Even when on the airplane, you got all kind of other seats around you because you might hear turbulence. See where I'm going? Right. He's talking to people who think they are in an advantage, that they're safe because they know how to quote scripture. They understand the Hebrew, understand the Aramaic, understand the Greek language and can discombobulate a naive person. But in reality, you who know more than another person are more culpable than the person that's ignorant. To whom much is given, much is required. Keep up with me. Keep up with me. This is what Paul is. This is why I told you he's a self-hating Jew in this generation because he has risen above ethnicity and he has landed on the truth of who God is. And he's telling everybody, hey, y'all, hey, we all wrong. And he's arguing for it. And so he says here in our text in verse 32, these words, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are what? Of what? Worthy of death. Now, please get this. This here is what we call a Torah frame. This is a legal language. This is a legal genre. I know what Paul is doing. I want you to get it. Because you are Gentiles largely in your thinking, you are alien to the genre. Paul is intentionally laying down Torah code because the trajectory of his argument are to people who know what? Therefore, people who know Torah know the death code of Torah. Do they not? They know that the wages of sin is what? They know when God says if you commit idolatry, adultery, if you steal, if you kill, if you murder, 
you are worthy of what? That's where he's going. Y'all got that? Now, I've already argued again, the Gentile knows it in a faint way in his heart. The Jew knows it vividly because God spoke from Mount Sinai. He gave it to Moses. Moses wrote it down. They got it in a book called Torah, Old Testament. Y'all got that? The Tanakh. And so he's really headed towards those people who think, as we're going to look at, they can escape the judgment because they have become judges. We do that. Rather than judging ourselves and agreeing with God, we end up becoming judges. Because you figure if you, if you become the judge, you can control the system. You can game the system. You, you can, is that true? Please. From the time we're born, we start arguing with our siblings. And when we realize that for the moment, we have a little bit more gray matter than them, a little bit more brain matter than them. We might be a little wittier than them. We utilize our own self-righteousness to keep them at bay, don't we? Now, they don't know a whole lot, but when they watch us, they see us acting the fool. And they say, hey, hey, you acting the fool. And then we start putting all kinds of whoop-de-doo on them, right? To discombobulate them. I call this pulling rank. It's called pulling rank. When in reality, you're guilty because the law is no respecter of persons. Isn't that what Paul just said? It doesn't matter if you're the older brother or younger brother. It doesn't matter whether you're man or woman. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white. It does not matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Does not matter with God. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. Listen to it. You know in the judgment of God that they that commit such things are worthy of death. You do exactly the same. But on top of that, you have pleasure in them that do it. I told you last week that describes the totality of our uh, music industry, our entertainment industry, our judicial uh, industry. This covers the whole gamut of our economic system where evil is mass produced and those in power mass producing it take pleasure in people who are trapped by it on the ground. Am I making sense? All right, this is where we are, and this is where Paul is picking it up. There are such clear inferences in this argument about where we are today. Thus, we read over in verse 3, and do you think, O oh man, chapter 2, verse 3, that judges them that do such things, you doing the same, that you shall what? Escape the judgment of God. See it? Ah. Point number one, let me work, walk through these three points. The first one is he attempts to control the process, right? The unrighteous judge, whoever that may be, attempts to control the process. That's why he gets into a position of leadership. That's why he wants to sit on the judgment seat. That's why he gets his own team of, of what would be collaborators so they can control the process. That's what they did when they condemned your master. That's what the kings and the rulers did when they condemned all the prophets. They gathered together all the counselors. Remember Ahab and Jehoshaphat with all the counselors and all the demons. And they came together. The goal is to manage and control and manipulate and use the law in order to escape their own judgment. That's quite amazing. Now, just in case it's hard for you to get what I'm saying, this is simply the difference between living for power and living for principle. That's all this is. There are some people who live for power because once you get power, then you can manipulate the law. You can control outcomes. You can determine who gets punished and who doesn't. 
This is what we call injustice. Did y'all get that? It's the world we live in. And some, some of us are born to ascend to the throne of authority so we can manipulate the law for ourselves and for whomever else wants to ride along with us. And that's what's going on in your text. It's important for you to know that. He attempts to control the process. Secondly, he assumes he has what? Immunity. That's what Paul is arguing in verse 3. And think is how this old man or woman or people group that judges them that do the same, and yet you are doing them that you shall escape the judgment of God. You know, Christ was arguing this in John's gospel chapter 8. When, John, when Jesus told the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priests, hey, look, I know you love telling people you're Abraham's seed. But you're not his children. Because if you were his children, you would do the thing that Abraham did. And what Abraham did was believe on the Lord Jesus. Jesus made it very clear. Your father is the devil. And the works of your father you will do. And this is when they argue, we be not in bondage to any man. How delusional could they be? The Jews were slaves all the way back to Babylon. And when Jesus came along, they were still slaves to the colonial system of the Roman Empire. And the rulers were money-grubbing Simonists that for pay would kill their own Jewish people. And this is why Judas Iscariot becomes a grand model of a pseudo-Zionist, a self-righteous Jew who for 30 pieces of silver trades in the most righteous man on the planet. Are y'all hearing what I stated? Scary language, isn't it? Because y'all, you know, you haven't been taught this because you've been jaded by the political system. You've been jaded by the proposition, pro propaganda of our world system. Am I making sense? But when you read your Bible carefully, guess what your Bible says? God is no respecter of any person. And the man or the woman that's going to matriculate up in their understanding and consciousness of reality, the closer you get to Christ, the further away are you from this world system and its ability to manipulate you by false laws by false policies, by false regulations. Am I making some sense? All right, so notice what he says. Uh, he, he attempts to control the process. He assumes he has immunity. We be Abraham's seed and have been in bondage to Noah. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you guys know it, you are searching the scriptures. That's an indicative form of the verb. You are searching the scriptures. He didn't tell them to do it. That's what they were doing. You can't meet a Hasidic Jew. You can't meet a Tamaldic Jew. You can't meet an Orthodox Jew that's not massively buried in Torah, are they not? And they were there in Jesus' day because they were Maccabeans. And they were wrapped up in Torah, wrapped up in the Tomo, wrapped up in the interpretation of the law. Whether it was in your conservative schools or in your liberal schools, your halal schools, or any of your schools in that day. And they were all confident that they knew God. But when God showed up in the flesh, they didn't see him. He came unto his own and his own knew him not. The world was made by him and the world rejected him. That means you can be buried in your Bible and never see God's glory. And if you misuse the Bible, it will become a tool in your hand to manipulate and control people, which is what we call false religion. This false religion loves to put 
false identities on people and control them and bring them into their own sphere of influence and authority. Am I making some sense? See, any system that would pass into and press into your heart and mind as if it's God is an idolatrous false system. Any set of ideas, any set of propositions, any discipline, any study, any learning you engage in that would, that would uh, veer towards telling you how you are to be and think of yourself contrary to the word of God is an idol. And we have all kinds of idolatrous systems in the world telling you to be something that God is not telling you to be. I'm making some sense, am I not? Good, I'm drilling this point down because I want you to get, otherwise you're not going to get where Paul is going. You're not going to get it if you don't understand that Paul sees two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And he understands both of them are under sin. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 20, okay? God has concluded them all under sin. This is why we preach the gospel to everybody alike. Nobody has a better advantage than anybody else over God. Am I making some sense? But what we must do is do what the prophets did. Remember, the church has two roles, prophetic and priestly. And you know what the church has to do? Expose leadership for being corrupt at the level of taking God's law and using it for its own political advantages. And that's all you get in the prophets, don't you? All you get by the Old Testament prophets is, Philip, I mean, uh, Herod, it is wrong for you to marry your brother Philip's wife. See what I just said? It is wrong for you to do that. Now, some fool would tell, tell John the Baptist, you should just preach the gospel, John the Baptist. Leave politics alone. John the Baptist is called to call leadership to repentance. Because when leadership repents, then the people will. If the people don't, if the leaders don't repent, the people by and large will have no motive to repent. Did y'all hear what I just said? Because as the leaders are, so are the people. This is why it's scary, the nation I live in, because the fellas that's running this thing, and I swear I'm watching Batman. I swear I'm watching Batman. Pastor, don't say swear, okay. I promise you I'm watching Batman. I'm promising you I'm watching the Riddler. I'm watching the Penguin. I'm watching all these clowns. And I'm going, whoa, the inmates have left the asylum and they're running the government. It's really true. And if you don't see it like that, you need to be careful. Because when, when leadership is corrupt, the people will be corrupt. Because we are more inclined to side with power than we are with principle. It takes a lot of grace to stand against the system. And this is what Paul is doing. This is why I love him. Jesus said in John 5, 39, you are searching the scriptures and in them you think you have eternal life. But they are they which what? Testify of me. But you won't come to me that you might have life. If another comes in his name, hear him, you will hear, but you won't hear Jesus. This is how you know you have abandoned the gospel for self-righteousness. All right, let's go on. Notice the other point in our outline so we can keep going, because this is where Paul is. I love this. He attempts to control the process. This is the unrighteous judge. God, make, make none of us in this room, under my hearing, unrighteous judges. He attempts to control the process. He assumes he has immunity, but he also abuses what? The goodness and mercy of God. Look at verse four and five. Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness? and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is designed to do what? Lead you to repentance. Now, you got to stay with the logic of Paul. I need you to stay with the logic of Paul. Who is he talking to? He's talking to rulers. 
Who is he talking to? People who have essayed to take the, uh, uh, the code and use it to plop on people's heads. He's not talking to the common person on the street. He's talking to the teacher. He's talking to the uh, principal. He's talking to the professors. He's talking to the leaders. Are you hearing me? To whom much is given, much is required. I mean, if we break it down into all of the categories of authority, yes, he's talking to parents who think they can arbitrarily set up laws and then plop them on their children. And when their children don't do them, the children, the children are mad at the parents and the parents want to be mad at the kids. But the kids know that these laws are set up by you and you don't even keep them. And now the kids are all fit to be tied because mom and daddy didn't put laws on them that mom and daddy don't keep. And then mom and daddy want to pull rank and beat down the kids for not doing what they say, which is the old colloquialism, right? Do what I say, not what I do. Well, no, hold on. That kind of plumb line don't work. And this is what Paul is doing, and this is what the prophetic word always does. The prophetic word always starts with the ostensive strongest people. It always starts with leadership. Jesus' ministry was against leadership, was it not? It was against leadership. John's ministry against leadership. Elijah's ministry against leadership. Elijah's ministry was against leadership. Uh, uh, um, uh, Enoch's ministry was against leadership. Noah's ministry was against leadership. You hear me? It's important for you to know that. Leaders don't get to get away by being judges. Let me drill this down and go head on. See, as soon as you and I let leaders be the fundamental source of right and wrong, then we have thrown away any kind of code. The code doesn't matter anymore. Jurisprudence is out, out, the, uh, out the window, right? Jur- jurisdiction is a problem. Jurisprudence, jurisdoctrine is a problem because now the lawyers are arbitrary. The judges are arbitrary. And do you know this is how kings have operated forever around the world? Kings sit on the throne and immediately they believe that they're what? Gods. That's what Pharaoh thought. When Moses came into Egypt to deliver the people of God, Moses was, he was commissioned to go to who? Pharaoh. And say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh said, who, who, who sent you? What authority are you coming in? And he says, Yahweh, I am that I am, has sent me. And then Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? See, he had been running around in his own worldview that he was the top dog, that there was nobody breathing the same air with him. Pharaoh literally means God. Are you guys hearing me? What? what, Another God is here? And then Yahweh showed up and proved that he was really God, didn't he? And the point is, ladies and gentlemen, if you and I don't know the true and the living God, we will always capitulate to false gods who usurp the authority of God. And this is what Paul is working through here. Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is designed to lead you to repentance? Pastor, what does that mean? God holds his peace for a long time to give you and I room to stop acting a fool. Not only does he do that with us common people on the ground, because I'm one of y'all, we, 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 we're just poor folk just trying to make a living. You know what we're doing. We're just trying to survive. And we got to deal with these systems. We got to deal with these rules. We got to deal with these laws. We're not in any personal position to change anything until we work collectively. Am I making some sense? And that's only in countries where that can be done. 
Because in some countries, I don't care how many of you guys come out, the way their policies work, there is no such thing as constitution. We the people, for the people, by the people. Nothing like that. And you just got to deal with a rogue, tyrannical system that arbitrarily does whatever it wants. And if you, if you don't, you know, if you don't engage in some surreptitious stuff, they're on the throne from generation to generation. This is how you know evil continues to perpetuate evil. Is that right? The only way you can get him off the throne is to assassinate him. And that's two evils, isn't it? This is why we are in trouble in a country built upon constitutional laws, in a system of grievance and, 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 and restoration that's predicated upon policies that allows us to get at it from the ground up. But in every stratum of those policies, you need good men and women that don't compromise the truth. Because wherever in the tier up to the Department of Justice, to the DOJ, everywhere in the tier up, if you've got corrupt people, that's where it stops. That's where it stops. And so I see where Paul is going. I know what he's doing. He understands he's in the Roman Empire. This is the last paradigm. The Roman Empire has to come down in order for Christianity to spread. Am I making sense? And he knows he's a major pillar in the crushing of the toes of that massive beast so that the gospel spreads. And so he's dealing with rulers. When we get to chapter 13, he's going to deal with the rulers. Every authority is raised up by God. That's what he says. And those authorities are supposed to do what God says. That's what he says. Authorities don't get to do whatever they want to do. God says he raises up authorities to reward good and punish evil. That's the only just grounds of occupying a position of authority. If you're going to occupy a position of authority, guess what you got to do? You got to know Torah. You got to know the Tanakh. You got to know the scriptures, both Old Testament and New. You got to know the the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. Up, down, in, out, male, female so forth and so on, right? Because if you don't, you can't judge righteously. This is where we are. This is where we are. And notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying God's riches and his goodness and mercy allows these rulers to sit on thrones of authority for long periods of time. They just sit there, don't they? Don't they drive you crazy? When he gonna go? When's she going to go? Right? That's what we were saying. Like, when they getting out of here? Because our system is four years and possibly you're out. Eight years at the most, right? And then we go, thank God, they're gone. I love the way our system is set up. Because in most countries, those fools can sit there for 40, 50, 60 years and completely devastate a nation. Ask Africa. Ask China. And it's happening in Israel right now. Please, may God open your eyes to see it. This is why turnovers are good. Isn't turnovers are good? Get some new folks in there, fresh blood. Get some ignorant judges in there. They might grow to do right. God says this. They despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God is designed to do what? Every day you and I are doing wrong and God lets you breathe in and out. This is mercy. Every day you are twisting God's law and he lets you 
breathed in and out. It's his mercy. Every day, people in positions of authority and influence who are suppressing truth and distorting the facts and engaging in discrimination and engaging in nepotism, 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 and engaging in cronyism, in cronyism, they are despising the mercy of God. Am I making some sense? Now, I want you to, I want you to see what, what Paul is about to say about that. Now, God leaves room for us to repent. That's just a crazy assumption, isn't it? He gives us room to repent, but here's what he's going to teach us. You won't repent if he just leaves you room to do what you do, and he doesn't send somebody to break your conscience free from the hardness of your heart. Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Watch this. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. I don't know if that's 2, verse 5. I don't know what that is. There it is. But after the what? The hardness and impenitency of the what? Child of God, I just love scripture. Don't you love scripture? Now, what he's saying here is this. Your heart hardens when you get away with evil. And it hardens so bad that you won't of your own turn. Bear record with me. Raise your hand. Bear record with me. This is how you and I know we're what? Sinners. You're a sinner. Your pastor's a sinner. We're sinners. And one of the ways we know it is we will know we're doing something wrong. And we will marvel that we don't stop. But we're looking, look, we're looking at ourselves and we're going, look at you, fool. You're about to go off the cliff. You're headed to hell. You call yourself a child of God and you're walking in abject rebellion against God right now. Isn't that an amazing thing? This is why we do not believe that man is basically good, but that he's basically evil. We do believe that your heart is so wretched and so deceitful and so maniacal that you are deceived by it every day. Your heart will tell you to look left while it goes right. That's, that's you and me by nature. See, so you got to fight against yourself. We're not at Romans 7 yet, but we're going to get there. You know that we got to get there because Paul says for honest men and women, they fight this good fight of faith because they know the struggle. This is why don't don't go around telling people you're righteous. Don't do that. Don't tell people you're saved. Okay, you might be on the pathway of salvation. But until you breathe your last breath, because we see folks falling every day who we have vouched to be saved and they've abandoned the gospel. So we have been saved. We are being saved. And we what will be saved if we continue to the end. But Romans chapter two, verse five is amazing. Notice what it says. And you are treasuring up to yourself every day that you live in rebellion against a known reality of what God is calling you to. Guess what you're doing? You are establishing a bank account. You got stocks and bonds. You got vehicles. You got mutual funds. You are treasuring up to yourself. You got you a 401k for hell. Do you see that? You're getting richer and richer. Not in heavenly things, but in earthly things. And that is to say, the wages of sin is coming. You're going to get your payday. Now, if you think it's bad for us common folk on the ground, the leaders, I already told you, hell is hottest for lawyers and preachers. And I'm still trying to figure out the other categories like doctors and 
people who actually really do harm people. Am I making some sense? Who really do try to pervert and destroy the Imago Dei. What the Apostle Paul is doing here is showing us how that the rulers fail to recognize that there's a time coming when they will be exposed to having engaged in what is called the law of reciprocity. That whatsoever man what? He shall also what? And that's true for all of us. So they work for an institution. They work for a law firm. They work for an economic system. It's only spiritual. And sometimes God pays off in this life. When he pulls the card and pulls back the curtain and shows people for exercising this kind of fraudulent judicial system. Am I making some sense? Got this crazy, crazy girl named Fanny Willis. Thinking somehow it's her job to rise up and bury the president under the judicial system. When in fact she's engaging in manipulative, distortive uh, finance issues of which her own people have warned her before she took on this case. Hey, we got problems in our own house. Now, what would cause you to know that you got problems in your own house and you're about to be put up on the biggest platform in the world and think you are a righteous judge when you are already engaging in cronyism and all kinds of things that will ultimately disqualify you? That's when you're deceived. That's when you're deceived into thinking that you're the one. You the one. Oh, I'm the one. You see what's going on here? And I tell you, this is how the devil works. I've told you this. The devil loves to put you on a platform. Now, the platform he puts you on is a contract with allowing you to be a lying sign and wonder. An optic that looks one way, but in reality, reality behind closed doors is something else. She's a beautiful optic. She's an African-American female. See what I'm getting at? This is why politics is the most diabolical system in the world. She thinks her leverage is that she's a black female, because, of course, that is the standard today. A black female that's about to take down a good old white boy. This is why you and I must never fall play to the black, white, faulty bifurcation argument. Listen to me. There is no male, female, no black, white, no bond free in Christ. We're all one in Christ. So, you know what I do here is I make my white folks mad and I make my black folks mad. This is what I do here. I make them all mad. The closer you stay to Christ, the more people are going to be offended when you show them that they're operating out of the hypocrisy of political standards rather than biblical truth. Am I making some sense? And what I love about what's going on in the 21st century, I mean, right now, the 20, uh, 2024, you know what I love what, about what's going on? The kids don't buy this crap. Man, I'm so happy about it. I'm so happy that the young people are not buying into these lies. They're like, they smell it. It's not, nah, I grew up with this. My mom and daddy been acting this way. <laughs> it's really true. And, and so, you know, they see what's going on, don't they? They see what's going on and they're saying, no, I thank God. And, and you need to know that our kids are often the plan of God for turning society around, particularly when old people get codified into 
false systems and they don't have strength to turn around. The children have to do it. The young people have to do it. They have to rise up and represent truth and equity and righteousness and goodness and mercy. I'm making some sense, am I not? Right, leave them alone. Don't let them buy into your discriminatory policies just because it secures them in some kind of economic wealth. Money ain't everything. This is what Paul is saying. I can tell you that now. He says over in verse uh, five, you are hardening your heart. You are not repenting and you are treasuring up to yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the what? Righteous justice. This is what I told you. Listen, listen. Paul's whole discourse is about God's righteousness. He's already told us God has condemned the whole world. Wrath is on all of us. That's what John the Baptist was saying. The wrath of God abides on us already. Did y'all get that? That's what John the Baptist was saying. That's what Christ was saying. Repent. Repent. The wrath of God abides on us. That's why Israel was destroyed in AD 70, because mercy came in the person of Christ and they continued rejecting it. That's why Jesus says, your house is going to be left to you what? Desolate. You see, we all have a season wherein God just sits back and gives us time to change. And we don't. And that's what we've got going on here. Y'all pray for Fannie Willis, her and her boyfriend that spent all that money on trips and all that partying over 500000 I'm glad there was a sister in the house that said, Miss Fannie, look, this ain't right. And she should have pulled out of even being the one going after the president. She's not the one. Now, the president got his own problems. But the only way we're going to get justice out of that is if there are righteous judges on the throne. Otherwise, it's tit for tat. And what you get taught once again is that this is all about power and power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the child of God must run from power to principle because in principle, is true power. That's point number two in your outline. Notice what it says in point number two, the righteous judgment. I love what Paul is about to do here. He says over in verse six, watch this. He says this, the righteous revelation of the judgment of God will render to every man according to his what? All right, please get that. We can really walk through that a little bit. Let me keep it moving so I can wrap this up. Please get this. Like when God judges any of us, anytime, anywhere, anyhow, he never asks for your, you know, your, 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 your um, social security card. He doesn't ask for your driver's license. He don't want your passport because he already knows you. It's not about being black, white, this, that. When God brings you to account and pulls your receipt, it's about what you do. Did y'all see what that text says? He will judge every man according to their what? Deeds. Right every man according to their deeds. This is extremely important for you to get because Paul is about to build on his wisdom as a Jew to argue with his Jewish brethren that deeds are what God judges. And because he judges deeds, he's going to say to his dear Jewish brethren whom he loves, as you and I know, Romans 9 says it, I could wish myself accursed for my brethren's sake in Christ. 
because he sees how wrong they are. Remember that? So even though Paul must drill down into their hypocrisy now, he makes it clear they're going about to establish their own righteousness by rejecting the righteousness of Christ, and that is a damnable state to be in. So if you meet people that you know are in this kind of trajectory of impenitency and hardness of heart, what are you going to do? You're going to tell them they're all right? Are you going to tell them that they're good with God? That just because they are the special people of God, as they allege, they can live like hell and expect to escape the judgment of God? A true Christ-righteous Jew would not let them do that. See, I'm telling you Paul is a Christ-righteous what? Jew. What is he doing? He's standing up to his own Jewish brethren and saying, you're wrong. Y'all got that? Standing up to his own Jewish brethren and saying, you're wrong. I'm telling you, to me, Paul is one of the epitome of types of Jesus Christ. Because it's easy to talk about other folks. But when it comes to your own people, see now, now talk about your own people. It's easy for women to talk about men. But for women to talk about women, that becomes a problem. Now, brothers hide when they talk about women. Because women have all the power today. But see, this is not about black or white or male or female. This is about righteousness. Mm -mm, I got plenty of them. There's some special water up here. Thank you, sweetie. Now, if we was on one of them red-eye flights late at night, I would take the water from you, Miss Stewardess. Uh... Point number two in our outline, verses six through 11, sub point A, the reward of what? Righteousness. I want you to hear how Paul builds this out. Notice what he says in verse seven. He's going to say it in verse seven and 17. And again, I want you to be thinking as a Jew who knows Torah. You guys got that? Here it is. Look at verse seven. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing, they seek for what? Glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. Do you guys see that? Now, I want you to capture that and hold on to that because without a proper lens, this framing is a problem. Without a proper lens, this construct is a problem. Will you notice what Paul said? He says, now, all you got to do is be patient and continue in well-doing, you who seek for glory, honor, immortality, and eternal life. For me, as a Christian, understanding the doctrine of redemption, listen, glory, honor, and immortality and eternal life cannot come from being patient or continuing in well-doing. But that's the way Torah taught it. Do you guys see where I'm going? All right, let's look at verse 10 because he does this again in verse 10. I'm going to come back and explain this to you because I want you guys rightly interpreting the word of God. No, I'm sorry. Go with me to verse, uh, verse 8. I'm going to use verse 8 and then move forward because he's using now a, a, um, a parallelism, contrasting parallelism. Look at verse 8. I'll get to verse 10. Now, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, all they can expect is what? Indignation and wrath. Now, you and I would go, amen, wouldn't we? We go, amen. But unto them that are contentious. Contentious about what? And them that do not obey the true. Obey what true? See what I'm getting at? 
there's an ellipsis here on Paul's part because he's taking you through the filter of the law. Because the Jews think that by doing right and keeping Torah, that they can merit favor with God. Did y'all get that? That is the fundamental teaching of, I would say, hyper-Orthodox Judaism. It's the notion that Torah will give you eternal life. This is why they call sons of Torah instead of sons of Jesus, the sons of God, I'm here to tell you. Right, the notion is that Torah will bring you life if you observe it. I totally get that. The problem is, Jesus came along. And you know what he said? There's none good, no, not one. Jesus came along and told all of them, none of you keep the law. Moses gave it to you, but none of you kept it. Do you guys see the problem, the quandary we have here? Are you Christians? Do you think Christianly? Can you for, can you for a moment formulate a notion that if you do one good thing, you can go to heaven? Do you understand the problem with that? Do you understand the problem with salvation by words? Do you guys get it? You keeping up with me? So, but Paul knows what he's doing because his audience is not Gentile. It's Jewish. He's getting ready to show us the fallacy of this trajectory of salvation by doing. Notice what he says here. And I, I, may God deliver you from that notion. Oh, well, if you do the right thing, child, you and God will be all right. That right thing better be the right thing. I'm here to tell you. It better be the right thing. Because if it's the wrong right thing, you're in trouble with God. Notice what he goes on to say. I love this. So now he's about to bring us to the nomenclature of Jews and Gentiles. Heretofore, he hasn't done it. He's about to do it now. Look with me at verse, uh, verse 10. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth what? That doeth what? Doeth evil is a Torah genre. Remember, the Torah tells us if a man keeps all the commandments of God, he shall live. Right. If a man keeps all the commandments of God, he shall live. That means that he is seeking to do good. If a man violates one law of Torah, he has done what? Evil. This here is the this here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we are trapped by that system. Y'all got that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning this. You and I are inextricably bound to right and wrong. Good and evil, light and darkness. And you and I are compelled to think that if I just do enough good, it will outweigh my evil. That's what every self-righteous system is teaching. Judaism, Islam, Catholicism, uh, uh, Orthodoxy, they're all teaching that. Did y'all get that? Like God will grade you on a, uh, uh, he will judge you on a, on a, a sliding scale. Your good will outweigh your, your bad. That's a problem. The moment you think that way, you don't understand the gospel at all. Y'all keeping up with me? But this is the way we catechize people. This is what you're going to learn on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday. That the law has to come to persuade you of its goodness and your badness. There's a lot of people will do this. They will judge God against God's law. They'll say like God's law is too harsh. It's too severe. 
Who can do that? Right? But God is designing his law for a purpose. And that's chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. The purpose of the law is not for you to try to do it, but to believe what it says all the way to the remedy that the law properly interpreted produces. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? You need to hear the law. You and I need to be under the law. We need to be persuaded that the law is right, just, and good. You should, right? Do you? Yeah. If we didn't have some semblance of law in our world, we would be an absolute mess. But ladies and gentlemen, watch what Paul is about to do here. This is extremely important under our second point to move to our third. He says over in verse 10, but glory and and honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There it is. He's saying, if you work good, glory and honor. That's amazing, isn't it? Look at verse 11. For there is no what? Respecter of persons with God. Paul, where are you taking us? All you need to do is hold on. All you need to do is write it out. Because what Paul has laid out is the righteousness of the law. He has told us what Torah demands. He's saying whether Jew or Gentile, if you do what Torah says, you'll be fine. Y'all got that? That's what he's doing. He's building the argument because he's arguing and debating with his Jewish brethren around the fact that a Christian is not an antinomian. A Christian does not hate God's law. A Christian does not diminish God's word. A Christian does not say that God's law doesn't matter. A Christian does not say that the law is evil, bad, or wrong. A Christian who is understanding the purpose and design of the law would never do that. The law reflects the character and nature of God and his holiness. Am I making some sense? Paul makes it clear. So with the mind, I serve the law of God. You should too. Right? Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day long. The law is good. The problem with it is that it cannot save you. Now keeping up with me? Now let's listen to how Paul puts it. Here's what he says in verse 12. For as many as have sinned without the law shall perish without the law. Who is he talking about? Gentiles. Because the Gentiles don't have the coded law. They have the internal law, but they don't have the coded law. They don't have Mount Sinai. And yet they've sinned. Now, if people are not thinking, well, you've got a contradiction here. Because you can't sin without law. Sin is the transgression of the law. So if the Gentiles are sinning, they have to be sinning against some law. Raise your hand if you're understanding what I'm saying. See, I just want you to stay awake because we're in a generation where Christians don't comprehend the truth clearly at all. And I want you to be able to do that through the effulgence of the New Testament. Also, I live in a generation where I'm losing my New Testament brethren to the Old Testament. A lot of people are drifting back to a Torah type of relationship with God. Did y'all get that? And it's starting first by nomenclature. You know what that means? They refuse to call Jesus Lord. And then pretending that they love Yahweh, love Yeshua, 
Never quote the New Testament. I had to get at a young brother the other day that's been emailing me, and I, I know where he was, and I just kind of rolled him out, rolled him out. Then I trapped him. I should stop, but that's what, you know, I had to work on my skills. That's all I did early on in my, my Christian life. I was an apologist. And I trapped him by helping him understand that he denies every tenet of the New Testament. The moment that you say that we are saved by either what we do or who we are. Did you hear what I just say? Like these neo-Jewish brothers, they're all neo-Zionist. They're rejecting Jesus for Torah. When the New Testament brings clarity to all of this, am I making some sense? Right. And so that's what you need to know. A lot of them are ignorant of this, but the church, our church over the last 50, 60 years has led to them departing from the New Testament, going back to Torah. Because Torah is easy for you to believe that all you need to do is identify with a group that puts on a form of godliness, that puts on a form of self-righteousness. And all kind of religious kooky, kooky crazy. This is what this Luther called them uh, flying spirits. <laughs> People who make up systems of religion that's predicated upon a unique behavior pattern or some shibboleth, some unique terminology. Then they get to wearing certain clothes. They have, they have fallen from grace and returned back to works religion. Of which Paul is arguing, ye who are desiring to be saved by the works of the law, you have fallen from grace. That's where we go, are we not? Is that where we're going, child of God? Y'all keeping up with me? And I appreciate Paul's patience with his Jewish brethren because he wants them to understand the calumnity of asserting that Christianity does not respect the law. Christianity respects the law better than Judaism. Notice what he says. Here's what he says. For as many as sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as sinned in the law, they shall be judged by what? Now, who is he talking about now? Jews, y'all got that? Good. The most important thing for you to do, child of God, is for your mind and your heart to engage the scripture. The most important thing for you to do is to be able to engage the scripture, not just reason from your own kind of logical, syllogistic capacities, but to look at the scripture and see it for what it says, because the scriptures are what we stand on. The only way you're going to defend against any heresy is to be rooted and grounded in God's word. And if you're looking up after a year of prayer and study and devotion and all you're reading is the Old Testament, you got to be careful. The Old Testament is incomplete theologically without the New Testament. It's extremely important for you to get that. Look at verse 13 and 14. I need to hurry up. Look at verse 13 and 14. Here's what he says. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the what? The doers of the law shall be justified. Do you see what Paul did? He shut everybody up to perfect obedience. Did y'all catch that? He started off chilling with it. First he started talking about the clowns in the judicial system. Then he started talking about people who could handle the word, know the word, have the word. And he warned them, there's not enough for you to know the word, handle the word, have the word. You have to do the word. And now he's saying the reward of righteousness only comes to those who have kept Torah. Y'all see that? He's not done with his argument, but he is done proving 
that all have sinned because the conscience knows we have not kept Torah. You haven't kept it. I haven't kept it. The Jews haven't kept it. None of us have kept Torah. See it? Of course, the doers of the law shall be justified. The gospel is not an unjust gospel. Righteousness in Christ is not an unjust righteousness. Every believer who is called the righteousness of God in Christ is righteous righteously, not unrighteously. It's just how is the believer's righteousness obtained? That's the question here. And before Paul answers that in chapter 3, he needs to still drill down into the delusion of his Jewish brethren. Y'all keeping up with me? Yes. So under point number two, the reward of righteousness is laid out. So point B, the reward, reward of rebellion. He laid that out in verses 8 and 9. And then he concludes in sub point C. I want you to get this. The raceless rule of a what? The raceless rule of a just God. For folks who love to put their stock in races. I'm a Jew. I'm a Gentile. Well, the scriptures are clear. Whether Jew or Gentile, if you don't fulfill all of what the law demands, you come short of the glory of God. Y'all keeping up with me? Look at what he's saying. I love this. Look at what he's saying in verse uh, 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the external code of the law are a what? Law unto themselves. Pastor, help me with that. I will. Verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. I love what Paul has done here. You know what he said? It doesn't matter whether you have the external code or the internal code. If the law is doing a proper thing in you, the first thing it's doing is showing you what God demands. The second thing it's showing you is what sin is. The third thing it's showing you is that you are a sinner. The fourth thing it's showing you is that you need the blood of another. You need the blood of another. Torah teaches you that. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. This is why Paul says, I love God's law. Because the end of the law for righteousness is somebody who has perfectly kept it. Y'all keeping up with me? You keeping up with me? It's extremely important for you to know this. See, this is why the gospel has been historically a problem for people for 2,000 years. Religion is not a problem for people. The gospel is. This is why we got hundreds of thousands of denominations in our world. I'm almost done. The, the guy that purchases three seats every time always says, take your time. <laughs> he flying on the front row seats. He hates the descent. He don't even want the plane to descend because he know we can ready to land now. It's extremely important that you and I go through this rigorous exercise of knowing the difference between the works of the law and the works of faith, which is Paul's argument. Did you hear what I just stated? Now, I'm getting ready to teach you this. I want you to understand that the only way the work of faith 
is a legitimate mechanism for being right with God is because the work of the law was accomplished. Did you hear what I just stated? The law of faith does not cancel out the law of works. It glorifies it. Right. This is what Paul is teaching us here. I love this. It's a raceless rule of a just God. This is what he's saying over in, uh, in verse 10 and 11. He makes it clear, for there is no respect of persons with God. He says over in verse, uh, 16, uh, verse 15, which showed the work of the law written in their heart and their conscience, also bearing record with them, their thoughts, meanwhile accusing or else what? Now look at verse 16. I'm done here. In the day when God shall judge the what? By Jesus Christ, according to my what? So this is where I want to land in my final point. This is called the revelation of the gospel. This is called the revelation of the gospel. There are three points here that I want to just put out and make a a closing statement about the revelation of the gospel. And we'll come back and deal with verses 17 all the way through because he's getting ready to confront his Jewish brethren head on. Okay, here's the revelation of the gospel. First and foremost, the gospel adequately reveals to us that we all have fallen in Adam. That's what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches there's none good, no, not one. The gospel teaches there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good. That means a woman either. Just in case you thought women were better than men. There's not a just man or a just woman upon the earth that doeth good. And sin is not. This is very clear to be understood. You are not even operating out of the first principles of the law until you realize you and I are behind the gun when it comes to God's law. If a man violates one jot or tittle of God's law, he's guilty of the whole thing. That's on purpose. Thank you, Lord. Why would God lie to you, tell you, if you like keep 50% of it, I'll let you in. When in fact... God demands perfect obedience. Am I making some sense? Pastor, you're shutting me up. You're shutting me up. Now you're at the wicked gate. Now you can knock on the wicked gate and enter into the narrow path. Now you can take the narrow path to the hill. And you can see on the hill a man that stood between heaven and earth upon whom God poured his eternal wrath and made him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, now you can go where God sends you because Paul said the purpose of the law is a tutor to drive us to Christ. Has it done that for you today? And and ladies and gentlemen, you better be thankful we don't live in the 17th century. Because see, my Puritan brethren, I'm done here. My Puritan brethren would keep you here for three hours. And what I just did would have been the introduction to a three-point sermon. Yes. Am I right, Mario? Yes. This would have been the introduction to a first point that needed to be drilled into so deeply because we are ignorant of the verity of divine truth in America. We're ignorant of it. We're ignorant of it. And here we are after an hour now, I'm getting ready to close on a third point. I'm here to tell you, we just flew through that sermon. And we learned little or nothing if we didn't already have a heart prepared to capture these fundamentals. If I was dealing with a church, your typical ignorant church, they couldn't even keep up with me on these points. Do you hear me? 
This is how bad it is in religion today. This is how bad it is in religion today. Men cannot endure sound doctrine. This is why they get up and leave. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what he's talking about. You should know what I'm talking about. The law is a mirror to show us the condition of humanity in our own hearts. Preacher, lead me through the law to the lawgiver and the one who fulfilled the law so that I can have rest from my sins. See? See? So the law in Adam was what? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely what? Did it happen? The law of Moses, according to Romans 2, 12, Galatians 3, 10, cursed is the man that does not continue in all things whatsoever the law said to do them. It's a problem, isn't it? Because whether in Adam or in Moses, everybody has fallen short. Isn't that what Jesus says? So now the only thing we have now is the law in Christ. Romans 3, starting at verse, uh, verse 23. I'm going to walk through verse 27 and close. Just going to walk through. We'll pick it up next week. Here it is. This is what we mean by the law in Christ. This is what I mean by the law of faith versus the law of works. Y'all got that? Do y'all understand what I just stated? They're both laws. They're both laws. One operates out of the law of substitution. The other one operates out of the law of personal obedience. The law of substitution requires you to believe that the law of personal obedience was accomplished by Jesus. See what I'm getting at? Good. Here it is. For all of sin, it comes short of the glory of God. Men and women who are confessional go, amen, that's me, Lord. I don't even hesitate. And just in case you don't know, that's in what is called the present present indicative verb form. Do you know what that means? All have sinned. And keep on coming short of the glory of God. That's a little twist on that. Is that a little twist on that? We thought that was the end of a story. No, that's the continuation of where we are right now. Look at the next verse. I'm going to walk through four verses. I'm done with you. Being justified. There it is, the doctrine of justification. Being justified. How is the guilty sinner justified? Apart from works. That's what the term freely means. God is not demanding anything of you to be justified. Being justified freely by God's grace. What does that mean, pastor? God, by his grace, established a righteousness for you outside of yourself in the person of his son. That's called grace. Did that make some sense? Stay with me now. Through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. What do you mean redemption? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you see it? Now, what he just did was put a conclusio on Romans chapter 2. The dilemma we had is whether Jew or Gentile, you got to keep the whole thing. Well, neither Jew nor Gentile personally did, but one Jew did. One true Jew did. And he came for everybody. Jew and Gentile, redemption in Christ Jesus. That's good news. Is that good news? Listen to it. Verse 25, verse 25. 
Verse 25, whom God, that is the Father, set forth as a propitiation. Who did he set forth? Who did he set forth? As a propitiation. That means he was a sacrificial offering on the altar of justice to expiate sin by the satisfaction of God's wrath. This is Isaiah 53. He became sin for us. By my righteous servant's knowledge, he shall justify many for he shall bear their sins. You are sitting back, sinner, looking at what God has done in your behalf. You are seeing somebody else that said yes for you before the world began, which allowed God to bring you into the world in time, let you live a crazy life, and then one day tap you on the shoulder and say, come, let me show you what my son did for you 2,000 years ago. And when you looked, when you looked on the man standing between heaven and earth, your name were in the palms of his hands. And Jesus said, Father, everything that they are, I am for them. And everything that they are, I am in them. This is the doctrine of union between us and Christ. Am I making some sense? And the law of faith says, believe that. That's what the law of faith says. That's what the law of faith says. Either you have the law of works where you got to do it on your own, or you have the law of faith where you believe that somebody else did it for you. Am I helping you? Right? I should, I should just stand here and defend God right now. I should defend him for a whole nother hour. Now, God has set forth his son to be a propitiation in other that we, by faith in his blood, God will declare his righteousness. God's declaring his own righteousness in the death of his son for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. What is he saying? I'm explaining to you that the reason men and women didn't go to hell in the Old Testament is because I took their sins and put them on Jesus before he came. So he saw their sins put away in the lamb before he came so that they lived and died on the grounds of a promise that God made since he can't lie, change, or fail. Jesus came in the fullness of time, died on Calvary's tree, made good the receipt, and we know that God speaks those things that are not, even though they haven't come to pass, because with God, there is no variable of turning, no shadow of modification. God doesn't lie. Am I making sense? See, now, when you're all powerful and you're all good and you're all righteous and you're all holy, you can bless men on credit because you can pay the bill and they can enjoy the benefits. That is the gospel. Listen to verse 26 and 27. I'm done. Listen to it. To declare. Notice now we're talking about declaration. When we preach the gospel, we are declaring the righteousness of God. The righteousness that I told you the whole world hates. The whole world hates this. Pastor, are you exaggerating? No. No. The whole world hates this. The reason every man, woman, and child in Adam hates this is because it takes the control of their salvation out of their hands. 
We, like Mr. Spurgeon said and Mr. Calvin said, by nature are Arminian. Arminianism teaches you're saved by your works. Every one of us by nature will work. Stupid as that may be. This is why you lapse into works religion in categories from time to time. Am I making some sense? This is also why you who are true believers despise the gospel from time to time because you have inadvertently slipped into works religion. And once you're trapped by works religion, now your pride won't allow you to be humble enough for God to say, no, 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 no. I cannot accept what you're doing. See what I'm getting at? It's extremely important that you know that you are a sinner. You are a sinner. The only way you can have comfort is that as a sinner, your only hope is in the immutable, unchangeable, irreversible, impeccable work of that which Jesus said, it is finished. There is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. Wherefore then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what law? The law of works? No. The law of faith. 